Section 12 of The Golden Book of the Dutch Navigators. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in December 2019. The Golden Book of the Dutch Navigators by Hendrik van Loon. Chapter 8 The Bad Luck of Captain Bontecou. Captain Bontecou was a pious man who sailed the ocean in command of several Dutch ships during the early part of the 17th century. He never did anything remarkable as a navigator. He never discovered a new continent or a new strait or even a new species of bird, but he was blown up with his ship, flew heavenward, landed in the ocean, and survived this experience to tell a tale of such harrowing bad luck that the compassionate world read his story for over three centuries with tearful eyes. Wherefore we shall copy as much as is desirable from his famous diary, which was published in the year 1647. On the 28th of December of the year 1618, William Isbrandt's Bontecou, with a ship of 550 ton and 206 men, left the roads of Tessel for India. The name of the vessel was the New Horn, and it was loaded with gunpowder. Kindly remember that gunpowder. There were the usual storms, the usual broken masts, the customary number of sick sailors either died or recovered, the customary route along the coast of Africa was followed. The weather, once the Cape was left behind, was fine, and the short stay on the island of Réunion allowed the sick to regain their health and the dead to be buried. The natives were well disposed and traded with Bontecou. They entertained him and danced for the amusement of his men, and everything was as happy as could be. At last the voyage across the Indian Ocean was started under the best of auspices, and the new horn had almost reached the Strait of Sunda when the great calamity occurred. On the 19th of November, almost a year, therefore, after the ship had left Holland, one of the pantrymen went into the hold to get himself some brandy. It was very dark in the hold, and therefore he had taken a candle with him. This candle, in a short iron holder, with a sharp point to it, he stuck into a barrel which was on top of the one out of which he filled his bottle. When he got through with his job, he jerked the iron candlestick out of the wood of the barrel. In doing so, a small piece of burning tallow fell into the brandy. That caused an explosion, and the next moment the brandy inside the barrel had caught fire. Fortunately, there were two pails of water standing nearby, and the fire was easily extinguished. A lot more water was pumped upon the dangerous barrels, and the fire, as far as anybody could see or smell, had been put out. But half an hour later the dreadful cry of fire was heard once more all through the ship. This time the coals which were in the hold near the brandy, and which were used for the kitchen stove and the blacksmith shop, had caught fire. They filled the hold with poisonous gas and a thick and yellowish smoke. For the second time the pumps were set to work to fill the hold with water. But the air inside the hold was so bad that the firemen had a difficult task. 
As the hours went by, the fire grew worse. Bontecou proposed to throw his cargo of gunpowder overboard. But as I have related in my first chapters, there always was a civilian commander on board such Indian vessels. It was his duty to look after the cargo and to represent the commercial interest of the company. Bontecou's civilian master did not wish to lose his valuable gunpowder. He told the captain to leave it where it was and try to put out the fire. Bontecou obeyed, but soon his men could no longer stand the smoke in the hold. Large holes were then hacked through the deck, and through these water was poured upon the cargo. Now, Bontecou was a pious man, but he was neither very strong of character nor very resourceful of mind. He spent his time in running about the ship giving many orders, the majority of which were to no great purpose. Meanwhile, he did not notice that part of the crew, from fear of being blown up, had lowered the boats and were getting ready to leave the ship. The civilian director, who had just told the captain to save the gunpowder, had been the first to join in the flight. He was soon safely riding the waves in a small boat far away from the doomed ship. For those who had been deserted on board, there was only one way to salvation. They must try to put out the fire or be killed. Under personal command of their captain, they set to work and pumped and pumped and pumped. But the fire had reached several barrels of oil and there was a dense smoke. It was impossible to throw 310 barrels of powder overboard in the suffocating atmosphere of the hold, yet the men tried to do it. They worked with desperate speed, but before the sixth part of the dangerous cargo was in the waters of the ocean, the fire reached the forward part where the powder was stored. A few moments later, 190 men were blown skyward, together with pieces of the masts and pieces of the ship, and heavy iron bars and pieces of sail and everything that belongs to a well-equipped vessel. And I... Captain William Isbrans Pontecou, commander of the ship, also flew through the sky, and I thought that my end had come. So I stretched my hands and arms toward heaven and said, O oh dear Lord, there I go. Please have pity upon this miserable sinner. Because I thought that now the next moment I must be dead. But all the time I was flying through the air I kept my mind clear, and I found that there was happiness in my heart. Yes, I even found that I was quite gay, and so came down again, and landed in the water between pieces of the ship which had been blown into little scraps. This is the captain's own minute account of the psychology of being blown up. He continues. And when I was now once in the water of the sea, I felt my courage return in such a way that it was as if I had become a new man. And when I looked around, I found a piece of the mainmast floating at my side, and so I climbed on top of it, and looking over the scene around me, I said, O Lord, so hath this fine ship been destroyed, even as Sodom and Gomorrah. For a short while the skipper floated and contemplated upon his mast, and then he noticed that he was no longer alone. A young German who had been on board as a common sailor came swimming to the wreckage. He climbed on the only piece of the ship's stern that was afloat, 
and pulling the captain's mast nearer to him with a long stick which he had fished out of the water, he helped our good Bontecu to pull himself on board his wreckage. There they were, together on the lonely ocean, on a few boards and with no prospect of rescue. Both the boats were far away and showed themselves only as small black dots upon the distant horizon. Bontecu told his comrade to pray with him. For a long time they whispered their supplications to heaven. Then they looked once more to see what the boats were doing. And behold, their prayer had been answered. The boats came rowing back as fast as they could. When they saw the two men they tried to reach the wreckage, but they did not dare to come too near, for their heavily loaded boats ran the risk of being thrown against the remains of the hulk. In that case they would have been swamped. Bontecu had felt very happy as long as he had been up in the air. Now, however, he began to notice that he had hurt his back badly and that he had been wounded in the head. He did not dare to swim to the boats, but the bugler of the ship, who was in the first boat, swam back to the wreckage, fastened a rope around Bontecu's waist, and in this fashion the commander was pulled safely on board, where he was made as comfortable as could be. During the night the two boats remained near the place of the misfortune because they hoped that they might find a few things to eat in the morning. They had only a little bread and no water at all. Meanwhile the exhausted skipper slept, and when in the morning his men told him that they had nothing to eat, he was very angry, for the day before the sea around his mast had been full of all sorts of boxes and barrels, and there had been enough to eat for everybody. During the night, however, the boats had been blown away from the wreckage by the wind. There was no chance to get anything at all. Eight pounds of bread made up the total amount of provisions for seventy strong men. Of these there were forty-six in one and twenty-six in the second boat. Part of that bread was used by the ship's doctor to make a plaster for Bontecu's wounds. With the help of a pillow which had been found in the locker of the biggest boat and which he wore around his head, Bontecu was then partly restored to life, and he took command of his squadron and decided what ought to be done. There were masts in the boat, but the sails had been forgotten. Therefore he ordered the men to give up their shirts. Out of these two large sails were made. They were primitive sails, but they caught the breeze, and, with the help of the western wind, Bontecu hoped to reach the coast of Sumatra, which, according to the best guess of all those on board, must be seventy miles to the east. All those who had the map of that part of India fairly well in their heads were consulted, and upon a piece of wood a chart of the coast of Sumatra, the Sunda Islands, and the west coast of Java was neatly engraved with the help of a nail and a pocket knife. A few simple instruments were cut out of old planks, and the curious expedition was ready to navigate further eastward. Fortunately, it rained very hard during the first night. The sails made out of shirts were used to catch the rain, and the water was carefully saved in two small empty barrels which had been found in one of the two boats. A drinking cup was cut out of a wooden stopper, and each of the sailors in turn got a few drops of water. For many hours they sailed, and they became dreadfully hungry. Again a merciful heaven came to their assistance. A number of seagulls came flying around the boats, 
and many of them ventured so near that they seemed to say, Please, catch us. Of course, they were caught and killed, and although there was no way of cooking them, they were eaten by the hungry men as fast as they came. But a seagull is not a very fat bird, and again there was hunger, and not yet any sight of land. The big boat was a good sailor, but the small one could not keep up with her. Therefore the men in the small boat asked that they might be taken on board the big one, so that they might either perish together, or all be saved. The sailors in the large boat did not like the idea. They feared that their boat could not hold all of the seventy-six men. After a while, however, they gave in. The men from the small boat were taken on board. Out of the extra oars a sort of deck was rigged up on top of the boat, and under this a number of the men were allowed to sleep, while the others sat on top and looked for land or prayed for food and water. No further seagulls came to feed this forlorn expedition, but just when they were so hungry that they could not stand it any longer, large shoals of flying fish suddenly jumped out of the water into the boats. Again the men were saved. The two little barrels of water had been emptied by this time. For the second time the men expected that they would all perish. They sailed eastward, but they saw no land, and finally they got so hungry and thirsty that they talked about killing the cabin boy and eating him. Bontecou asked them please not to do it, and he prayed the good Lord not to allow this horrible thing to happen. The men, however, said that they were very hungry and must have something to eat. Then he asked that they should wait just three days more. If no land was seen after three days, they might eat the cabin boy. On the thirteenth day after the explosion there was a severe thunderstorm and the barrels were filled with fresh water. Most of the men then crept under the little cover to be out of the rain and only one of the mates was left on deck. It was very hazy, but when the fog parted for a moment he saw land very near the boat. The next morning the survivors reached an uninhabited island where there was no fresh water but an abundance of coconut trees. The men attacked these coconuts with such greedy hunger and they drank the sap with such haste that on the succeeding day they were all very ill, with great pains and a feeling that they might explode at any moment, just as their ship had done. From the presence of this island, Bontecou argued that the coast of Sumatra must be about fifteen miles distant. He filled the boat with many coconuts, a wonderful fruit because it is food and drink at the same time, and sailed farther eastward. After seventy hours he actually reached Sumatra, but the surf did not allow him to land at once. It took an entire day before his men managed to row through that terrible surf, and then only at the cost of a swamped boat. At last, however, they did reach the shore, bailed out their boat, and made a fire to dry their clothes and to rest from the fatigue of this terrible experience. Some of the sailors meanwhile explored the country nearby, and to their great astonishment they found the ashes of an old fire, and near it some tobacco. This was very welcome, for the men had not smoked for many weeks. They also found some beans. These they ate so greedily that they were all ill, and in the middle of the night, when they lay around groaning and moaning, they were suddenly attacked by the natives of the island. 
They had no arms, but they defended themselves as well as possible with sticks and pieces of burning wood, which they picked up out of the fire. The natives fled, and the next morning sent three messengers to have a talk with the shipwrecked Hollanders. They wanted to know why he and his men had come to their island. They were told the story of the burning ship and the explosion which had killed many of the other sailors. Bontecu said that he was a peaceful traveller and would pay for everything he bought. The natives believed this story and came back with chickens and rice and all sorts of eatables for which Bontecu paid with money. The natives then told him that this land was Sumatra and that Java was a little farther to the east. They even knew the name of the governor-general and Bontecu now felt certain that he was on the right road to a Dutch harbour. Before he left, he made a little trip up the river to buy more food, for he counted upon a long voyage in the small boat. This visit almost cost him his life. One day he had bought a carabao. He had paid for the animal and told the four sailors who were with him to bring it to the camp, but the carabao was so wild that they could not manage it. The four sailors decided to spend the night in the village and try their luck once more the next morning. Bontecu thought that this was too dangerous, and when his men refused to return to join the others, he hired two natives to paddle him back in their own canoe. The natives told him the price for which they would row him back to the camp, and he gave them the required sum, but when they were out in the middle of the river they threatened to kill Bontecu unless he gave them more money. Bontecu said a short prayer and felt very uncomfortable. Then he heard a voice inside himself tell him to sing a funny song. This he did. He sang so loud that the noise resounded through the quiet forests on both sides of the river. The two natives thought that this was the funniest thing that they had ever heard, and they laughed so uproariously that they forgot all about the plan to kill the white man, and Bontecu came safely back to his own people. The next morning a number of natives appeared with a carabao, but Bontecu saw at once that it was not the same one that he had bought the day before. He asked about it and wanted to know where his men were. Oh, the natives said, they are lazy and they will come a little later. This looked suspicious, but whatever happened, Bontecu must have this carabao to be eaten on the trip across the Strait of Sunda. Therefore he tried to kill the animal. But when they saw this, the natives suddenly began to call him names and they shrieked until several hundred others came running from the bushes and attacked the Hollanders. These fled back to their boat, but before they could reach it, eleven men had been killed. Of those who scrambled on board, one had been hit in the stomach with a poisoned arrow. Bontecu performed an operation, trying to cut away the flesh around the wound, but he did not succeed in saving the life of the poor fellow. There were now only fifty-six men left. With only eight chickens for so many men, Bontecu did not dare to cross the strait. The next morning, armed, he went on shore, and, having gathered a lot of clams and filled the small barrels with fresh water, sailed away for the coast of Java. They sailed all day long, but at night there came so violent a wind that the sails had to be taken down, and the boat drifted whither it pleased the good lord to send it. 
it pleased him to bring it the next morning near three small islands densely covered with palm trees out of the bamboo which grew near the shore several water barrels were improvised there was still some food but not much therefore the discovery of these islands did not bring much relief to the poor shipwrecked people bontecu wandered about in a despondent mood and when he saw a small hill he climbed to the top of it to be alone and to pray to the good lord for his divine counsel he prayed for a long time and when at last he opened his eyes he saw that the clouds on the horizon had parted and that there was more land in the distance and out of this he saw two bluish-looking mountains lifting their peaks suddenly he remembered that his friend captain schouten who had been in those parts of india had often told him of two strange blue mountains which he had often seen in java he had sailed across the sea which separated sumatra from java and the island on which he and his men now were was a little island off the coast of java he knew his way now and he ordered his men to row as fast as they could a boy was told to climb the mast and keep watch and behold the next day the sailors suddenly saw a large dutch fleet of twenty-three ships under frederick houtman who had left tessel with bontecu and was on his way to batavia he took all the men on board his ships he fed them gave them clothes and carried them to batavia the newly founded capital of the dutch east indies where the governor-general one jan peterson cohen received them very kindly and appointed bontecu to be captain of a new ship of thirty-two guns which plied between the different colonies and carried provisions and supplies of war from java to the other colonies it also brought to java the granite which was necessary to build the strong fort where the government of the colony was to reside later on bontecu was made captain of another ship called the Groningen, and he visited china where the dutch company tried to capture the portuguese colony in macao and to build a fort on one of the pescadores islands to protect their chinese trade after two years of this work bontecu wanted to return home and he asked to be given the command of a ship that was about to leave for holland he was given command of the hollandia which with two other ships left batavia on the sixth of february of the year of our lord sixteen twenty five but bontecu's bad luck had not yet come to an end this patient man who never lost his temper and accepted everything that happened to him with devout resignation once more became the victim of all sorts of unfortunate occurrences on the nineteenth of march his ship was attacked by a terrible storm and soon the waves threatened to swamp the vessel bontecu ordered the men to work the pumps as hard as they could then the pepper stowed away in the hold broke loose got into the pumps and clogged them finally baskets were placed about the lower part of the pumps to keep the pernicious pepper out of them and the hollandia was saved of the other two ships one the Gouda, had disappeared when the morning came and the other the middelberg had suffered much her masts were broken and they had no spare the atlantic finally the middelberg left part of his spare yards for masts and then he sailed with all possible haste for madagascar to repair his own damage 
He reached the island inside a week and cut himself a mast out of a tree. He repaired his ship and spent a month on the island, where he was well received by the natives, who flocked from all over to see how the Hollanders made a new ship out of the wreck which they had saved from the storm. Here Bonteku waited for the other ships. But the Chauda had sunk, and the other, the Middleburg, reached Madagascar much later and spent several months in the Bay of Anton Gill. Most of her people were ill, and among those who died on the island was the commander of the ship, Willem Schouten, who with Le Maire had discovered the new route between the Pacific and the Atlantic. Finally, the Middleburg left Madagascar and sailed to St. Helena. There she got into a fight with two Portuguese vessels, and that is the last word we have ever received of her. As of Bontecu, he too reached St. Helena, where he wanted to take in fresh water. But a Spanish ship had landed troops, and he was not allowed to come on shore. So he went farther on, and at last reached Kinsale in Ireland. This time the joys of life on land almost finished the brave captain, who so often had escaped the anger of the waves. His sailors went on shore, and after the long voyage they appreciated the hospitality of the Irish inns so well that they refused to come back on board. They stayed on shore until the mayor of the city, at the request of Bontecu, forbade the owners of alehouses to give the Hollanders more than seven shillings credit apiece. As soon as this was known, the men, many of whom had spent much more than that, hastened back to their ship. Crowds of furious innkeepers and their wives, crying aloud for their money, followed them. Good Captain Bontecu paid everybody what he or she had a right to ask, and finally, on the 25th of November of the year 1625, he reached home. Bontecu went to live quietly in his native city of Horn. He had written a short account of his voyage, but he had never printed it, because he did not think that he could write well enough. But one of his fellow townsmen wanted to write a large volume upon the noble deeds of the people of Horn, and he asked Bontecu to write down the main events of his famous voyage, and he promised to edit the little book for the benefit of the reading public. And behold, this same public, saturated with stories of wild men and wild animals and terrible storms and uninhabited islands and treacherous Portuguese and hair-breadth escapes, took such a fancy to the simple recital of Bontecu's pious trip toward heaven and the patience with which he had accepted the vicissitudes of life that they read his little book long after the more ponderous volumes had been left to the kind ministrations of the meritorious bookworm. End of section 12